smoking bans. It means no smoking in any public buildings, businesses, or establishments. It's now a common restriction across the United States. But in 2003, it was a new thing. Bloomington, Indiana passed the ordinance making the city smoke-free. And simply put, people were not happy. Bloomington is a college town, and as you can imagine, it's a college town filled with bars. And with bars come smoking. Shortly after the smoking ban went into effect, the mayor's office started receiving a number of complaints on businesses for allowing smoking. The mayor directed the police department to curtail smoking and enforce the smoking ordinance, and that started the infamous smoker patrols. What was the impact of these smoker patrols? Now, this is a story we're telling in this episode. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. A smoker patrol consists of an officer assigned to monitor the downtown bar district and write citations for smoking. Officers became unpopular very quickly. Officers started figuring out ways to get out of the smoker patrol. In my career, I had never seen so many officers volunteering for emergency runs, basic reports, and traffic accidents. Anything was better than working the smoking patrol. When my turn came around for smoker patrol, I just shrugged and headed down to the bar district. I parked my car and walked up to the first bar, got the doorman's attention and said, in five minutes, there'll be a smoking patrol and anyone caught smoking will get a ticket as well as the business. I then stepped across the street, waited the five minutes as promised, and to my happy relief, there were no citations needed. In the preceding months of smoker patrol, I never had to write a single citation. But people were angry at the police for enforcing the ban. We were the messengers, the front lines of local government, enforcing the rules that not everyone agreed with or appreciated. The people were not angry at the city council members who voted to enact the ban. They were mad at the police. And at the next election cycle, every council member who voted for the smoking ban was reelected. Now, how does that make any sense? The truth is, it doesn't. The Blue Canaries take the brunt of the decisions made by the politicians. Now, why is that? Let's take a step back into history to find out. In the 1800s, policing in the United States was in its infancy. There were no professional standards, and as the Industrial Revolution took hold and masses flocked to the cities, local politicians were responsible for civic services. Policing quickly became an important part of a politician's business. Politicians like New York's William Tweed, better known as Boss Tweed, utilized police officers to enforce his graft and increase his political power. Chicago had Anthony DeAndrea, who was not only a prominent politician, but a mafia boss whose position to hire and promote officers made it easy for him to utilize the local police as an extension of his political power. The early politicians recognized that they could leverage the local police to extend their political power, and citizens generally interacted with the police and not the politicians. So when things were tough, it was easier to blame the cops than the people who wrote the laws. In 1871, the federal government instituted the civil service practice. Now, this was an attempt to protect government employees from being summarily fired for political reasons and allow them the freedom to provide professional services for the country. Now, this slowly developed with the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act of 1883 and the Hatch Act of 1939. Various states started adopting civil service laws with the notion of removing politics from civil service positions in the government. It didn't work. 
politics is alive and well at every level of government. Today's decentralized and local-based policing across the United States has its advantages, but it means that each community has a different type of police force and a different focus. For example, Grand Island, Nebraska's police department is very different from Natick, Massachusetts police department. Not better or worse, just different. It's different because of the location, because of the citizens who live there, and because of local politics. Now, why are politics so interwoven with policing? Because every community is responsible for providing police protection. And who's responsible for making that happen? The elected officials, of course. Let's look at the top law enforcers for a community for an understanding of this. The sheriff. The term sheriff comes from the old English Shire Reeve, which was a political official responsible for overseeing an area of the kingdom. The concept was adopted in the United States in the 1600s and continues to this day. A sheriff is an elected police official responsible for the legal issues of a county. You can't be a sheriff unless you're first elected by the people. And as a result, all sheriffs are politicians first, not police officers. Here is Sheriff David Clark, who served as the sheriff of Milwaukee County, Wisconsin from 2002 to 2017. As an elected official, if you have the backing of your constituents, you have a lot of freedom. Uh, after the police shooting of a black man, a second night of tense riots breaking out in Milwaukee last night, as you can see from that video. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark is with us. And, Sheriff, I know it's just been a very tough uh, two or three days. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, how did this all happen? Maybe you can just uh, first just talk us through what happened. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm used to tough. Uh, I've been doing it for 38 years. Uh, look, the social order in Milwaukee totally collapsed on Saturday night. And when the social order collapsed, tribal behavior takes over. When tribal behavior takes over, the law of the jungle replaces the rule of law. And that's why you end up with, with what you saw. Last night was a little better. Not good enough for me. I won't be satisfied until these creeps crawl back into their hole so that the good law-abiding people that live in the Milwaukee ghetto uh, can return, return to at least a, a, um, a calm quality of life. Uh, Sheriff, we understand that the video that was recorded on the officer's body camera sh quite, show, quite clearly shows what happened. Is that right? Well, I haven't seen the video, but I did talk to the mayor yesterday, and uh, he said he saw the video, and then it's clear that the, uh, the suspect that the officer confronted was armed with a firearm. I noticed that people are leaving that out when they say police shot a man. They shot an armed individual this time. So it doesn't give the, the cop haters uh, the high ground on this sort of thing. But look, that's not what causes riots anyway. What causes riots are failed liberal urban policies. So remember, sheriffs are elected politicians, which means until the next election, they've got a lot of freedom. Next, we have the chief of police. Now, municipal police departments are run by the chief of police. And how do you get to be a chief? You are appointed by the city mayor. And while chiefs are not directly elected by the constituents, they are chosen by the elected official. So their behavior, career, and job are wholly dependent on the mayor. Keeping the mayor happy is always going to be in the back of their minds and sometimes to the detriment of the department and community. Here is Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett explaining what the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department is going to be doing. In cities, mayors run the show. I'm sure that this will be frustrating to many. These investigations are now in the hands of the Marion County Prosecutor, 
and a soon-to-be-named special prosecutor with monitoring from federal authorities. And we have been advised that the release of any information should only occur at the direction of those individuals. Indianapolis has my commitment that we will continue to provide information as soon as it is releasable. And to those in our community who have expressed real concerns, I am listening and learning from you. And I see the frustration and the heartbreak that our city endures as we respond to these tragedies. I share that heartbreak. I know that Chief Randy Taylor shares that heartbreak. Nothing that I might say, only what I will do will have any impact on the way residents view law enforcement in the city of Indianapolis. That is partly why last week I appealed to federal authorities and directly to the United States Attorney's Office to monitor the investigation into last week's fatal police shootings. But this conversation is not new. Our commitment to addressing the systemic challenges and the history of mistrust is what led us to implement department-wide implicit bias training in 2018. It was what led to the creation of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion located within IMPD's training academy. And it is why we have invested millions of dollars in technology upgrades for the police department over the past four years. Even though we work hard to keep politics out of the day-to-day business at the patrol level, sometimes our bosses won't let us because of the politics. And while a smoking ban may seem small, it speaks to a larger topic. The sheriff and the chief of police are political positions, making politics the dirtiest word in policing. When state and local governments started implementing mask mandates to combat the pandemic, I must admit I had immediate flashbacks to the smoking ordinance. And even though the decision and executive orders had been created by the elected politicians, I knew cops were going to be the ones on the ground enforcing these new rules, and that would mean they would be the ones taking the blame. On April 4th, 2020, a Fox News headline read, Houston Police Officers Union President Slams Judge Who Ordered Arrests for Citizens Not Wearing Face Masks. The report went on to say, quote, A recent order from the Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo is facing backlash in Houston, Texas. The order would fine citizens $1,000 if caught not wearing a face mask in public for the next 30 days starting next week. Under the order, residents 10 years old and older are required to wear a covering starting Monday, April 27th. The only exceptions will be when exercising, eating, drinking, if you're alone in a separate place or at your home. In a Fox News exclusive, Houston's police union president, Joe Gamaldi, called the measures, quote, draconian, unquote. He went on to say, quote, we encourage all our officers to wear a mask. We want citizens to wear masks. We draw the line in this draconian measure that our county judge wants to impose on all of our law-abiding, hardworking citizens of our community, unquote. So I wasn't the only one worried about the backlash of this type of order. And this didn't just have to do with masks either. It had to do with the closing of churches, gyms, businesses, and limiting the ability of citizens to assemble. Well, that's some constitutional shit right there. So what is a poor patrol officer to do? 
the governor's new law says that X can't happen, but X is really going to piss some people off, and it's questionable if the governor can really make X stick. And of course, the patrol officer's bosses are ordering them to act. Rock, meet hard place. That leads me to the concept of discretion. The dictionary defines discretion as the freedom to decide what should be done in a particular situation. Now, in the context of police discretion, it means that police officers are given the right and opportunity to act according to their discretion in stopping people, arresting them, and using force to bring about an arrest. The idea behind police discretion is that the law should be flexible in some ways in order to ensure that the spirit of the law is satisfied. Now, that was a lot. But it's necessary for understanding just how impactful politics are on our profession. Now, one rule that helps guide us through these challenges is what I like to call the 80-20 rule. Being route to subjects congregating on the front porch of the residence and not wearing masks. Dispatch puts out over the radio. 10-4. The officer responds. A few minutes later. Dispatch, I'm going to have to divert. I'm going to be out with a suspicious person in the 1000 block. Or my favorite. Dispatch, I'm having vehicle problems. I'm going to have to be out of service getting the vehicle checked at fleet maintenance. They also might continue to the call, drive by, see the people standing on the porch. They wave, keep going. Dispatch, they all appear to be family and from the same household. No violation. You get the idea. The 80% are your solid officers. And they're the cops that do the right thing and are there for the right reasons. They know their oaths, and they try to keep out of politics as much as possible. These are the good cops. Then we have the 20%. Now, this group breaks down a little further into two subgroups. Half of them are the top 10%. Now, the top 10% of your department's rock stars. These officers are exceptional in every way. Not only do they understand what is going on, they often understand the underlying elements that are frequently missed by officers. Now, these high performers will show up to the call, walk onto the porch, and talk to the people, convince them to do the right thing, and end up usually being thanked for helping out when everything's said and done. Even when faced with hostility, they manage to defuse the situation and find a way to make everyone happy. And then there's the bottom 10%. These are the cops that end up on the news. These are your low performers who lack critical thinking skills. They're the officers who go directly to the call and immediately start ordering people around. In their minds, that executive order is black and white with no room for argument. These officers have no idea what the term discretion means. No matter how you look at it, these are the ones that make us look bad. Politics and policing impacts every element of a department. Here's an example. Bloomington, Indiana recently became one of the first agencies in the United States to defund their police department. With 85,000 people by census and another 48,000 IU students living in a community of a little over 19 square miles, you might be surprised to hear that the department only had 105 officers at the beginning of 2020. Now, that number makes the department one of the lowest staffed police departments per capita in the United States. In October of 2020, the city of Bloomington's 2021 budget was passed, which took away funding for five police officers and gave that funding to civilian positions. Now, even though an independent study commissioned by the city found that the department was understaffed and should add approximately 16 sworn officer positions, the city went the opposite direction, not to make the city safer, but to satisfy a political agenda. Politicians decided a police department's staffing, budget, and leadership, and the police are at the mercy of the politicians. 
If you don't like your local police department and don't believe they're providing you with the services you need or deserve, look to your elected officials. They're the reason the problem exists. They created it. A community gets the law enforcement it votes for. It's easy to look at the police and blame them for what's going on. You will never see a video of your governor standing on someone's porch and lecturing them about masks. You'll not see your mayor arrest people uh, who gather for a religious service. If they had to enforce their own dictates, you might see things done a little differently. Politics is the dirtiest word in law enforcement, and it's not going away. We're stuck with it until the fundamental building blocks of all human society change. Learn how to navigate this difficult stretch of road, and remember at election time, you also get a vote. And that's the story we have to tell. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at Agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. Speaking of politics, let's talk about police unions. They get a bad rap. One of the first police unions in the United States is the Fraternal Order of Police. Now, the FOP was founded in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1915. Their specific goal was to, quote, bring our grievances before the mayor or council and have many things adjusted that we are unable to present in any other way. We could get many things through our legislature that our council will not or cannot give us, unquote. In 1954, the National Conference of Police Associations was created to strengthen bargaining efforts, and in 1979, it became the International Union of Police Associations and was added as a member of the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of unions. Now, these police unions, like any other union, were designed to improve worker conditions and negotiate for benefits and salaries, but police lack one of the biggest tools unions have, the ability to strike. On September 9th, 1919, the Boston Police Department went on strike. They were protesting poor salaries, lack of equipment, long work hours, and extra duties such as serving tax bills, taking census, supervising polls at election, being forced to live at the station houses and sharing beds in unsanitary conditions. When the department attempted to unionize and join the AFL, the Boston Police Commissioner forbid them from joining any, quote, organization, club, or body outside the police department, unquote. So, using the tactics of the union, the officers went on strike. Eighty percent of the force refused to come to work, and the city quickly devolved into riots and robberies. The governor of Massachusetts at the time, Calvin Coolidge, sent in the state militia to regain order and declared, There is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. And as a result, today it is illegal for police to strike. Without being able to strike, all negotiating can be difficult. With pay based on the budgetary process, the unions have often looked for concessions in areas that don't cost money, and the politicians were quick to accommodate. Due process has been a major point of many police contracts and a union focus for a very long time. Protecting officers against malicious supervisors, politicians, and the public wanting revenge against an officer for simply doing their job have resulted in, at times, powerful contracts regarding officer misconduct. 
Now, in simpler terms, if a department wants to fire a bad officer, they have to go through a specific process. Now, this is not designed to protect the bad cop, but to protect the good cop from being targeted. The side effect of this, you end up protecting the bad cop as well. Now, this isn't a game changer. The departments just have to follow all the appropriate and necessary steps in an investigation to take action against the officer's misconduct. But when the mob is crying for blood and the politicians take action without following the contractual rules agreed in good faith with the union, then we have a problem. Now, traditional labor unions have been very left-leaning, and because of the history of using police to break up strikes, they typically don't like law enforcement, and they also don't like police unions. Members of the AFL-CIO have frequently lobbied to have all police unions removed from the organization. As usual, the politics quickly overshadow the goals of the organization. Here's an example of this in action. Camden, New Jersey is often described as a city that fixed a corrupt police department by defunding the police department, but that's not an accurate representation of what happened. The Camden, New Jersey Police Department had a strong labor union. The city had given the union many concessions regarding officer staffing, performance, and work hours in lieu of salary and benefit increases over the years, and when the city wanted to make changes, the police union fought them to a standstill. So, Camden, New Jersey broke the union. They disbanded the police department and fired all the officers. They then started a new police department and immediately tried to hire back the officers they just fired. Needing jobs, the officers returned under new leadership without that pesky contract and union problem. See, if this had been anything other than a police union, you would have seen nationwide union strikes in response. Police unions, like many other unions, are designed to assist their members by providing them the ability to band together and negotiate their working environment. They don't protect bad cops any more than Teamster unions protect bad truck drivers and the pipe fitters union protects bad plumbers. See, when we talk about police unions, we tend to focus on those labor aspects. But police unions have a very prominent community role as well, a role I think we need to focus on for a moment. Local police unions work closely with the underprivileged in their communities, from sponsoring athletic teams to providing scholarships. It's not just about the police contracts. It's also about the police contacts contacts with the community. Shop with a Cop is a national program that provides opportunities for underprivileged children to go shopping at Christmas time with police officers. The officers help the kids pick out toys and clothing that they likely would never have gotten had it not been for donations from the community and the organization of the union. The police unions are important. They help the officers and the community. And by the way, there's politics in the unions as well. I have an idea. Let's just make politics illegal. But then it would be up to the cops to go and arrest the politicians, and I'm sure that would make somebody angry. <laughs> but I would bet you wouldn't have any problem finding cops to comply with that order. All right, that's it for this episode. I'm Tim42. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 